Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Crim Academy, where we are criminally academic. I am your host, Jose, and I'm joined today by my co-host. Hey, everyone. I'm Jen. And today we're speaking to professors Lise Locum and Andres Ranquifo for about their work on police interactions, race, ethnicity, and willingness to report crimes to law enforcement. Lee is a professor in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Lee received her PhD in Criminology and Criminal Justice from the University of Maryland. Her recent work is focused on interactions between the police and the public and the consequences of these encounters. Andres is a professor in the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers University, New York. Andres received his PhD in Criminal Justice from the City University of New York. His research focuses on police community relations and the discourse and practice of punishment within and beyond courtrooms. Hi, Lee. Hi, Andres. Hi. Thanks for having us. having us. Yeah. Thank you for joining um, us. So before we get started, just kind of an overview of how the episode is going to go is we have some general questions about kind of police interactions with citizens, police legitimacy, procedural justice. And then we're going to jump into an article co-authored by Andres and Lee about racial identification frames and how, or how racial identification frames perceptions of police contact, interactions, legitimacy, and effectiveness, and then get into kind of some more implications of the framework that they outline in this paper particularly regarding some current events that are happening in the United States right now. Okay, just to sort of get us started with the more general questions, could you guys describe what police legitimacy and procedural justice are? Sure, I'll go ahead and start, and I think Andreas can jump in here in various places. So legitimacy really is an evolving concept. It has slightly different meanings depending on the discipline but it's generally used to explain why people obey the law. In criminology, the most common conceptualization that had been used is really drawn from Tom Tyler's work in psychology. And he argues that legitimacy has two components. So the first component is an obligation to obey the law, and that, that is even if someone disagrees with it. And the second component is trust in institutions. So legitimate power holders can be understood when they're contrasted with other types of power holders. So one type of power holder would be something like naked power. And naked power holders, they make no claim to legitimacy. So these are authority figures who essentially use force or coercion to obtain obedience. Dictators might be an example of naked naked power holder. A second type of power authority would be like a de facto authority. And in this case, they may make a claim to legitimacy, but they actually have not secured that right to rule from the public. So they have not obtained consent. This type of authority you could see in colonialism. And some people might argue that in some places this might apply to the police. You've heard some contexts where the police are are viewed as communities as, as invading forces. So the police have argued that they have a claim to legitimacy but the community members may not, may not give consent. And then the third type of power holder is a legitimate power holder. And here you have sort of the claims to legitimacy. They claim legitimacy and the people accept their claim. So those are kind of the different ways you can kind of think about how you can obtain consent, how you can obtain obedience. I think the concept of legitimacy is still evolving. 
And so there have been challenges and extensions to Tom Tyler's conceptualization of it as just being, you know, consent and, and trust. So some scholars include legality as a component of it. And legality has to do with whether the authority's power has been lawfully established and whether it's used within the bounds of the law. So recently we've heard, with regards to policing, we've heard this discussion in terms of use of force and what the law dictates in terms of lawful use of force for police officers. And then another aspect that is of legitimacy has to do with whether the justification of power is on shared beliefs and values. And this is where ideas about how decisions are, are, are made come in. So, so that's another aspect that's being brought in. And then finally, effectiveness is another thing that's come into play. And I think Andreas is going to talk a little bit about effectiveness and sort of trust in institutions. Right. So one can also think about legitimacy in perhaps a more narrow way, thinking about it in, in the context of measures of police performance, right? So if one thinks about activities of the police and the way we track and assess progress in the fulfillment of those activities and, and sort of their general mandate, we are probably familiar with things like clearance rates, obviously crime rates, and other measures that track from an operational perspective day in and day out what, what cops do. So one can imagine that legitimacy can be added to that, to that set of indicators, right, as a way to think about the contribution of the police to society in a way that's kind of more ambitious and broader, perhaps deeper than just thinking about the number of activities that they conduct, right? So one can imagine things like routine surveys conducted where uh, people in a given jurisdiction are asked about their contact with the police and their views on the police along lines of trust and along lines of perceptions of authority and views on the power yielded by, by, by police officers. And this is something that's been practiced in a few places. So the Met Police, the Metropolitan Police in, in London, uses a survey conducted twice a year as part of their metrics of, of the police, right? And that is included in their budgeting process. It's included in their policy planning. It's included in the way they plan sort of the future of, the, of that department. In other places, I know it's sort of in New York, for example, there is interest in embedding in metrics that track the performance of the NYPD, some measure that comes from the public, right? A measure that speaks about sort of that quality of interaction of, of, of police officers with the public, but that also speak about sort of the meaning that the public is given, is giving to that to that interaction. And so when thinking then about this idea of legitimacy in connection to police performance, then it's easy to imagine that then legitimacy is also about effectiveness in a sense that effectiveness sort of signals to the public that the police is meeting an expectation, that is meeting an expectation of showing up when they're called, that they're affording victims, addressing the needs of, of citizens and so forth. So one can then imagine that if the police are effective, then they are legitimate, right? That effectiveness is a precursor of legitimacy, right? That, that if you don't show up for calls, if you're not around in the neighborhood, if you do not solve crime, then it's very hard to imagine that a police service would be seen in a positive light across other domains of, of performance, right? including legitimacy. So in Latin America, and I'm originally from Colombia, there's quite a bit of work done on this, thinking about the performance of the police in terms of effectiveness, 
but also in terms of legitimacy, trying to combine these two, thinking about satisfaction, thinking about trust, and trying to combine these two, not only to speak about the contribution of the police to, to public safety, but how citizens view government services, not only the police. And so this acknowledges then that context explains a lot of the sort of views of the police. And so in Latin America, views of the police perhaps are more closely tied to delivering, delivering a service, right? Delivering something in the case of, again, sort of showing up when called or solving a crime. And less so, sort of these broader ambitions of representing people, right? So as long as you call them and they show up, then we consider that that service to be to be not only effective but legitimate. And I think that's in part due to the fact that state delivery and service delivery in, in contexts like Latin America is is insufficient and, and, and typically weak. So the expectations of people have to do more with effectiveness uh, rather than, than than legitimacy. And would you say that legitimacy and procedural justice are dependent on each other or are they completely separate? concepts? So procedural justice is generally viewed as one way that authorities can gain legitimacy. And in some conceptualizations of legitimacy, like Bottoms and Tenkibi, they view procedural justice as integral to legitimacy. So I think there's not really a consensus there, but they are certainly related, either depending on your viewpoint, either causally or, um, or integrally. And I mean, so, so procedural justice is yeah, just one of, the, one of the many ways that power holders can establish legitimacy. Yeah. But in terms of effectiveness, I guess the distinction there, if so procedural justice is more, if it's more about the process, right, than the, than the outcome then effectiveness is associated typically with the outcome, right? So perhaps the distinction then between uh, procedural justice and effectiveness is a little cleaner in a sense that one speaks about process and interaction and exchange, and the other one is perhaps more closely associated with the notion of distributive justice, right? So, Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. That was actually something that while reading the paper, because I hadn't totally, like, obviously I'd heard of the concepts of legitimacy and procedural justice, but this notion of effectiveness, I thought was really cool. And it was actually pretty new to me. And so I'd actually talked to Jose about the distinction between procedural justice and effectiveness. So thank you for clarifying that. I can definitely see how they are distinct concepts. Yeah. All right. So switching now into more of these, the importance of the research that both of you do. Why is studying police citizen interactions important both for academic purposes and research as well as for policy and practice? So I think that the study of police citizen interactions has broad theoretical implications in criminology as well as in other disciplines. And although it's often thought as a micro level theory, it has, it can cross levels of levels of analysis and levels of aggregation and really link to macro level ideas as well. But at the micro level, it's viewed as one factor in a sort of a series of different explanations for delinquency, most directly in terms of procedural justice having an impact on legitimacy when, you know, when if people view their interactions as fair, as just, 
and having a voice, they're going to view authorities as more legitimate and in turn be more likely to obey the law. So there's sort of that direct implication for, for delinquency. And work has, has found that. Other work looks at how the, these interactions shape views about when it's legitimate to use violence. So if you feel the police aren't going to be there for you, if you don't think you can turn to them for help, you may be more likely to use violence. And so that has been sort of another way they've been tied into theoretical explanations for delinquency. You also see it plays a prominent role in labeling theory. Although labeling theory mostly just focuses on a contact, not really the nature of the contact. But that's, a, you know, that's an area where people come, the interaction with the police actually changes people's views of themselves and leads them to view themselves as deviant, which has a number of ramifications, such as shifting their peer groups to be more delinquent and changing their norms. So it's kind of been a central part of a lot of different theories about crime at sort of the individual level and as well as the community level. So work in terms of legal cynicism, the idea that sometimes people think it's okay to use violence um, in some circumstances, that's tied closely to people's experiences with the police and the law more generally, as well as, you know, Elijah Anderson's work on, on code of the streets, you know, where the law ends is where the code of the streets begins. So those are, those are a few different ways. Andreas, did you want to add to that? Sure. One of the other ways we're sort of, we're thinking about how the, so how police interactions, police citizen interactions matter for, for research is that we're sort of adding to this, to this body of literature the work on social identity and specifically on racial ethnic identity by saying specifically or by sort of investigating whether the quality and type of contact between people and, and the police can operate as a influence on how people see themselves and how they project that identity into domains of interaction and perception of others beyond the specific context they have with the police. So in that in that way, we think of identities as being fluid, as identities change and are informed by our contact with others and our view of others. And specifically, police-citizen interactions are a very crucial moment where those identities are actualized and where the updating of those identities then can be projected into other domains of judgment, other domains of interpretation of one's integration into society. And so that's, in a way, how we think that we can sort of in some way link individual interactions with the police to perceptions of the police, right? Because people then are taking in some way that sort of those interactions and then and then recasting the way they think about the police more generally. So, so, so we think that sort of that's one area where citizen-police interactions have implications for theory as we think about theories on identity and, and how identities shape opinions. And then a sort of a second sort of point there is to think about what is the meaning of citizenship, right? And, and so belonging to a society, being integrated into a society, and how that attribute, which is formal, right? It's sometimes sort of obviously protected by law, uh, gets actualized and how it gets activated, how it's put into action, specifically in the contact that we have with the police. It may be put in contact in other settings, of course, when we get mail, when we go to the DMV, when we leave the country, when we pay taxes or when we get money back, uh, you know, when we vote. There are all these ways in which citizenship is practiced 
But a key one is the connection with the police because of sort of meaningfulness of the consequences, right? So deprivation of liberty, fines, punishment, death, right? So more so than other encounters we, we, may, we may have with other bureaucracies of the state. But also, and as such, then they're also important because they many times are seen as a proxy for all these other government services, right? So the way the police treats me is not only about the police, it's about how I'm going to be treated more generally by other bureaucracies and maybe by society at large, right? And so in that sense, we think that these encounters speak about social integration and speak about how people see, see, the, see, see themselves in society. And what the paper is trying to do is to say, if we take that position that, that encounters matter, then we also need to then say that not all encounters are the same. And that people read into these encounters different things depending on who initiates these contacts, depending on the type of authority that is mobilized, as, as Lee said earlier. And this goes back, you know, decades in, a, in our field. And so, for example, Al, Al Reese's uh, classic work on the police and the public back in the 60s, we talk quite a bit about how the form of authority and the deployment of, of authority by the police in a police-initiated encounter is quite different from the way they deploy and enforce and project authority when the encounter is triggered by citizen interaction, by citizens calling the police, right? When citizens call the police, that authority is given, right? The police come into a situation where they've been invited, where everybody knows who they are. In a police-initiated encounter, that's very different, right? The, The police are disrupting a situation, are pushing themselves into a situation with sort of obviously creates tension, creates confusion where the roles have to be asserted. And so that kind of sort of, we take that framework and, and work that was done before and after as contribution to think more specifically about how identity matters and how it, it matters in connection to, to these specific encounters. Well, lots of reasons for its importance. <laughs> of course. Which, which is good. So in a similar vein of looking at police citizen interactions so we why are the communities that these citizens or these impoverished communities seem to get policed harder than your more affluent communities and and what kind of impact does this sort of focused policing have uh, on the citizens of these communities so i'm going to just talk a little bit about that i think sort of like maybe that uh, something to i think acknowledge and i think it's perhaps obvious at this point, is that police behave differently in different areas, in different places, in different cities, and obviously differently across different people, right? So, so there is not one police, right? And, and even within the same city, there, there will be versions of that police. Now, perhaps a conventional way to think about this is that the police will behave differently because they are reactive, right? They are taking into consideration what they see and what they what inputs they, they, they get. And perhaps the most important input at that, at, at that point is crime, right? So the police will react to crime. So there will be more of them. They would be more proactive in areas where crime is high or where crime has been systematically high. And we're not talking about all crimes. Uh, we're, crime, we're talking about crimes that are visible to the police, visible to the public, the crimes that are used to assess their performance, right? So street crime, violent crime, sort of the seven major crimes in the, in the UCR, FBI reports, and so forth. And we're not talking about white-collar crime, right? They're not particularly sensitive to that type of crime. 
And so that's sort of the one way to explain why the police is different across different places, because places have different levels of crime. But obviously there is, there is a lot more to that, because crime then tends to be high in areas uh, that are disadvantaged, in areas that are poor, in areas that are isolated, excluded from the mainstream economy in ways that are explicit and implicit, right? Redlining, segregate, housing segregation, highways, sort of the way we think about public housing. So you can imagine that the police would not necessarily act as a service that is sensitive to socioeconomic conditions, right? They're not necessarily looking for, for models that are different for affluent versus impoverished communities. If they are, but, but at the end of the day, when thinking about crime, they will be reacting to some of that anyway. It's also the case that even though then police are sensitive to crime, they are sensitive to crime and not necessarily updating the way they, they behave when crime goes down, right? So part of what may, we may be seeing today, and I know we're going to get into that later, it's a model of police that, that, that has been tremendously influenced by high levels of crime, right? And those high levels of crime are no longer part of, of, of many of our, of our cities and inner city communities, right? So levels of crime in some of the places where we've done work, like in the South Bronx in New York, have, have uh, plummeted, right? To levels that we haven't seen since the mid-60s. But a lot of the behavior of the police in these neighborhoods in some way has failed to update and refresh that feeling, right? That the, the neighborhoods are remarkably safer at, when we think about sort of violent crime, when we think about serious crime. Part of it may be explained by a displacement on what crime is, right? So that move toward border maintenance policing and disorder and drugs and loitering has in some way become the sort of a justification to think about the delivery of safety in this way that is not necessarily responsive to anything that we have conventionally tracked, right? We don't even track the drug crimes in our UCR reports or we consider it to be part of it. Same thing with order maintenance and disorder policing, right? None of these things exist in any sort of general framework right, that allows us to compare jurisdictions or over time. So I think part of what's happened is, is in some way that redefinition by the police and by the public to some extent of what risk and dangerous, dangerousness and lack of safety look like in, in our communities where there is no more, well, there is homicide and there is sort of violence in general, but that violence is remarkably lower than it was 40 years ago. And there's a failure to update part of that. Do you think, I don't know if there's any research on it, so if there's, you know, if there's not a consensus, that's fine, but do you think that that has to do with training in these police departments, or just a lack of ideology that hasn't really changed? I don't know, I will say that, but I think part part of this discussion probably needs to be tied, and I think Andres kind of alluded to it, talked a little bit about, you know, specific policies tied to like zero zero tolerance policing right and so the great success of that or the NYPD's claim that that was very successful in reducing crime in New York had I think a, a large effect on other agencies and their use of sort of zero tolerance or high levels of policing in high crime areas and so you get this kind of diffuse fusion of innovation among police agencies that like David Weisberg has studied. And if you have an agency of such, you know, NYPD is just kind of seen as a leader, 
and other agencies will follow behind in some cases. So I think that plays a role in it. Of course, you know, those are, that's tied to crime as well. I think maybe one other issue that Andreas didn't mention, and, and I think it's tied to some of the current discourse has to do with a lack of like, so you have a problem in your neighborhood and some research has looked at how people handle those problems in maybe a suburban area versus an urban area in terms of settling it internally versus seeking outside sources of support. So there has been some speculation that people in some neighborhoods don't have other sources to turn to. So for mental health related issues that are emerging, it's easier to call the police perhaps than to to know how to get other sources of help. So I think this lack of perhaps other other supports like that may also in some way kind of contribute to the idea that these are high, that these are areas with like high volumes of calls for service. I would say to add to that, that's a great, that's a great point, Lee, and, and I thank you for bringing it up. I think that's where you see the poverty, right? That's where you see the difference, right? You see the difference in the way that sort of the availability of services is limited so in terms of volume, but also in terms of, of variety. And in a place like New York, again, the merging of the of the of the housing police, of the public housing police, with the NYPD back in the sort of with with the, the, the initial round of Comstat reforms in the early '90s, kind of pushed the idea that housing needs to be in some way governed by the police and enforced by the police, and that the problems of housing are the same problems that you will encounter in the in the streets. And so policies associated with how do you patrol and secure housing became less about housing and more about just a general model of anti-crime of the NYPD. Mm-hmm. And we've had actually quite a few incidents where people have been killed. There's one case a couple of years ago by police officers who are new to the force and who do not understand how to patrol some of these high rises. And you know, sure enough, there was a case where you know, as someone who was more or less a, a rookie cop in one of these stairs and, you know, things got confused and he, you know, whatever, someone got, someone got killed. So I think, so, and the city has tried actually to move away from communicating or projecting to people the notion that the police are there to solve everything, right? By creating, for example, the 311 number that allows people to call the city to report a problem, but not necessarily Mm -hmm. call the police. And, you know, it can be from like reporting sort of stray dogs or people selling illegal cigarettes in bodegas to sort of reporting noise complaints and things like that. And so with the the notion that, you know, we need to divert some of these activities away from the police early on to the point that people need to know that they do not need to call the police. Because at the end of the day, some of the sort of the, the terrible incidents that we've been sort of tracking in the past few days sort of originate from someone calling the police. Someone is calling them, right? And so when you know, clearly one can sit here and think that there are other ways to handle problems and perhaps not, not, not necessarily even involving the police or involving any other sort of agent of the state. But as Lee said, in some of the more affluent communities, there are ways to deal with problems that are provided or that are available or seem to be available to people. Yeah, that's a good point. So this is an article co-authored by Andreas and Lee called The Identity Prism, How Racial Identification Frames Perceptions of Police Contact, Legitimacy, and Effectiveness. It came out this year in Law and Social Inquiry. 
So I'm just going to kind of give an introduction to it before we get going. If I say anything that's wrong, please let me know. So this article argues that racial and ethnic identification links social context to individual perceptions and evaluations of police and police-citizen encounters. Andreas and Lee draw on and extend prior work on social identity, procedural justice, and attitudes toward the police to propose and empirically test an individual-level framework of how racial and ethnic identity acts as a lens, or as you guys refer to, a prism through which people perceive their experiences with law enforcement. Does that sound like a decent summary? Yeah. So without farther ado, let's dig into the questions that we have for you guys. So in the development of your framework, it is discussed how personal encounters with police are pivotal to actualizing identities, whether that can be sexual, racial, or ethnic identities. And so based on prior research and theory, how do these encounters with the police influence the development of racial and ethnic identities? So one thing we do hope to talk about, maybe not now, but maybe when we get to the findings or the framework a little bit more, is about the, a little bit more about the context of the study and the data collection and its origins, because we think that's really important for interpreting the findings. So I don't know if we maybe can talk about this now, or did you want, we could maybe talk about it a little bit later, because it is a kind of a unique sample at a unique period of time. And so I think it does help to interpret the findings and even the theoretical framework. Yeah, no, Um, by all means, please uh, go ahead and and lay some of that foundational stuff first. I think that would be pretty helpful. Thank you for letting us do that. I think it's, uh, yeah, and I think it's important to, it's not part of the, it's not what you see in the study, in the the paper, right? So the story, a little bit of the paper and the project, right? So this is part of a project that started at the Vera Institute of Justice. And Vera is a nonprofit organization, a think tank, some, some people would call it, but also sort of on the advocacy space in New York City, but also working in other places in the country, in LA, in New Orleans, in DC. And Vera does a lot of things. But one of the things they do is that they work on policing. And, and back in the early 2010s, 2011 and 12. In New York City, there was a big, big, big control controversy over numbers of people stopped by the police and sort of the inability to sort of counter sort of the official narrative about about this this these encounters, right? So the data that and that fueled the conversation was all data produced by the state and by the city, which meant that there were things that we could not answered. So there are questions that we could not follow up on, on perceptions, on implications, and obviously on the fact that the narrative is a narrative that comes from the police reports, right? From from paper forms that may or may not be completed, may not or may not be always sort of close to what, what actually happened on the ground. So we felt that there was a moment in time to add to that debate in terms of generating new sources of information that would speak to the people on the ground, so on the receiving end of, of, of these interactions. To ask, for example, things about like the uh, how frequent are these events of stops, right? Because, uh, the, for example, the police data cannot link people together, right? These are incidents of stops, so they cannot be. So you cannot talk about people; you can only talk about stops. And that's important because people are likely to be exposed multiple times to encounters with the police, and that cumulative effect may be as damaging as the one-off interaction, right? Because because trauma comes sometimes from this chronic exposure and, the, and sort of the patterns 
of, of, of sometimes abuse or neglect that, that keep happening. So we launched this project. I was invited to be part of it. I was at, at Rutgers, but I had worked at the year before. I knew people there. And so, so one of the things that I think is important to, to say is that we went into neighborhoods that were seen as hotspots for police stops based on the administrative data produced by the NYPD and then tried to find people who had been stopped by the police. We figured that since this was a study about experience, we needed to focus on the people who had been stopped, right, as opposed to focus on just the general public. So it was not a, a random sample. And what we did was essentially, again, on the one hand, to select on, on, on areas that had high levels of police activity and stops specifically. And then in those areas to look for young people, people ages 18 to 25, who were, again, on the administrative data, those who were most likely to be stopped and ask around. So we just actually set up shop in community organizations in those neighborhoods that were partners with Vera that Vera people knew. And that was important to establish our own legitimacy going back to, 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 the, to the notion, right? So, you know, going to these neighborhoods as researchers, we, you know, and coming from, you know, some nonprofit, I mean, it didn't make any sense to people on the ground. But when we said, you know, we're here with, you know, so-and-so, this organization that is around the corner, we're conducting this survey and we are actually in the neighborhood. You can conduct it here. We did compensate people for the survey and that was a little tricky to do because obviously, you know, 25 bucks, you know, I'll do, you know, I'll, I'll complete many surveys for, for, for maybe less than, than that. So it was hard to get people engaged at the beginning, but then over time, you know, we were in some of these areas two or three days, then we were easily sort of completing 58, 60 surveys a day. So that's sort of the survey component of the study, which is the foundation of the paper that, that we're talking about today. But the study also had many other sort of components, including focus groups with community organizers in the same neighborhoods, a subset of people interviewed who were ages 13 to, 20, to 21, so younger sample for interviews, and their caregivers to look at sort of transmission of, of socialization views on the police between caregivers for the study and i think sort of as lee said there are sort of strengths and weaknesses in that kind of design right so it's not a random sample it's a sample of young people in these neighborhoods at a very specific moment in time but also and that can work and sort of in favor of a study but i think it's just a way to sort of think about what are the implications of the study and where are the contributions of the study so I guess now we can go back, go back to your question, maybe, and talk to us this about this a little bit better because we do, you know, it is it is primarily a sample of people of color, and so that's who this study focuses on. But the work on the criminal justice system as race making has been done in a number of different contexts. So Epping, Epson colleagues have done some work on this out in Kansas City, where they did interviews with with people as well as survey research. Us finding that, that depending on how people were treated by the criminal justice system, it increased, it strengthened their racial identity. And ethnographic work has been done on this by in prisons, or sorry, I think it was a jail by Michael Walker talking about how the criminal justice or how the how the jail system itself segregated people based on perceived race, kind of strengthened those racial identifications. I think that. You know, people have called the criminal justice system as, as race making, as sort of a, as an engine that produces these differences. And I think it's primarily due to the fact that policing and the criminal justice system were generally is, is heavily racialized. We know there's disparities there. And so these kind of disparities, when they play out, can kind of can strengthen this identification there. 
Thank you. Andreas, did you want to add some to that? No, I think you said it. Okay. All right. So then from there in the paper, you also argue that racial or ethnic identification can serve as this prism for how people interpret their interactions with police. And so less attention has been paid to this empirically. So theoretically, or according to the framework, how should racial or ethnic identity act as a prism for interpreting these police-citizen interactions? So we've alluded to this a little bit, and it's, it's interesting, sort of the, the prism idea, because we started, the, the first title of the paper was, so through the looking glass, right? We had like this, this very sort of, sort of catchy title, <laughs> but it didn't quite work. I mean, it, it was not the study we were <laughs> that wasn't our paper, but it's been kind of the paper written by other people on this idea that through police interactions, then people see themselves, right? So the notion of police officers as mirrors, right? So that's actually a title of a paper published by a group of people in, in, in England a couple of years ago. So that's, so when, when thinking about identity and thinking about race, one way is to imagine that again, people see themselves in these interactions. Uh, so it is about the race making, right? So people alter their identity. There is a labeling process. There is an internalization process of, oh, I am really a criminal. I am really someone who's dangerous. But that's not what we had here, right? That, that wasn't our data. We didn't have data over time. The study is cross-sectional. What we were thinking is about how people may, may be sort of, again, transferring, projecting, sort of with the idea of the prison sort of that something comes through the interaction, that setting, that situation, and something comes on the other end of it, right? And so it's not a reflection, it's a refraction. And in that sense, we're thinking that people take what they learn in those interactions and then sort of recast the way they think about the police more generally, right? So that's why we take something that's micro, like, a, like an interaction, and we think about something that's more macro, like the, the, the perceptions of law enforcement more generally, right? And so that's, you think about the Pink Floyd, uh, Dark Side of the Moon yeah. kind of album. That's a little bit what you, what, you see, what you see happening or what we think it's happening, where theoretically these interactions are, are moments where identities are actualized. And why ra racial identities specifically? Because of, of the racialized nature of policing, as Lee already mentioned. And because there is a history of it, right? So it's not just the present that is racialized, right? And in the past, in the past few years, there's quite a bit of, of work that has tried to connect ways in which we enforce order today with ways in which we manage racial groups and dominate them, right? So, so, so links between the sort of tools and mechanisms and actors involving, involving the sort of developed during slavery and how those sort of versions of those tools have traveled over time and, and are maintained and, and, and used today. So, so people come into these interactions, individuals come into these interactions already sort of with a, with a, with a set of predispositions on how these interactions are to be read or, what, or the, what these interactions are to be avoided, frankly, because there is obviously quite a bit of learning of how these interactions are supposed to take place. But also not on the, on the part of citizens, but also on the part of the police, right? So there is a setting and an exchange that is that is loaded with meaning. And it's not just meaning attached to that one moment, but meaning that is attached to other prior interactions that the person may have had, interactions that their friends and parents and cousins had, the interactions that they read about or they, they learn about from their parents and grandparents. And so that that's why for us the paper is sort of micro level, that it is that it starts there, 
but it also kind of sort of expands that framework in terms of or through the notion of identity, right? Because we think that identity is that that binding sort of mechanism that allows those interactions to travel beyond beyond what, what individuals actually exchange in the context of those police encounters. I really liked the idea of the prism. Like I definitely think it captured what you were trying to do in the paper, at least for me. So yeah, I thought it was cool. Thank you yeah. again. We would really like, we may all write a paper eventually that has the through the looking glass, yeah. but uh, we'll need a different data set for that. I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like catchy titles. David Pyrus is both of our advisors and he's always like, no, stop with the catchy titles. <laughs> and we're like, no, but we like them. <laughs> yeah, we, we have the same kind of dialogue with Lee. Yeah. <laughs> my titles are very boring. <laughs> yeah. I'm good with well, the subtitles. They may be boring, but they're okay. right. <laughs> I, I, I got the catchy titles, but they're wrong. So, <laughs> well, I feel that up. way too. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we've covered a lot of ground in, in the last few minutes, and so just to sort of recap, could you give us like the the quick and dirty brief layout of the individual le- level framework that you're proposing in this paper? I'll take a stab at it. We like to make things a little bit complex, <laughs> so a figure would really help here. But I think I'll just highlight what we see as the main relationships in the paper. So essentially, we're working with, you can think about three, we'll just categorize them into three key variables or three key buckets. One that has to do with sort of, I'm primarily going to talk about like the evaluations of the most recent encounter. So whether someone felt disrespected in their most recent encounter versus whether they were satisfied with the most recent encounter. So those are kind of two of the independent variables. Racial identification is the third one. And then we're looking at how these three things work independently and in concert to shape notions of effectiveness and legitimacy. And we argue, you know, I think as Andreas has already laid out, that we think that racial identification will essentially amplify the effects of these different encounters with the police, and that we think this will be more true for the ones that kind of have a moral standing with them. And so that has to do with respect, because that's kind of transferring information about your place in society. And that has to do with the outcome of legitimacy, which has been tied, as we said before, to kind of this morality, shared morals, shared norms. And then we kind of link these ideas about your satisfaction with the most recent one to effectiveness. And we argue that effectiveness is a more narrow concept and it's based on more instrumental concerns versus these larger concerns about your place in society and sort of norms and, and order. And so, yeah, if you can, you can, that's the way I kind of think about it, the relationship between these sort of three independent variables linking to our two outcomes of legitimacy and effectiveness. Andreas, did you want to clarify that explanation a little bit? Or Well, it's, it's, I think that one thing I would say, and thank you for that, Lee, is just that obviously these are sort of cross-sectional relationships, right? So we mm-hmm. don't have time. The way we, we do have time, though, of course, is that these interactions are happening in the past, and we are mm-hmm. asking people's perceptions now. So I think there is, so the time dimension, I think it's important. It's also important because we do have the ability to speak about the last interaction, right? Not the most memorable interaction, which is sometimes how people have collected survey-based data on interactions. And by obviously focusing on the most memorable one, there is, by focusing on it, that remembering of the interaction may be 
adding bias in the way that, that, that we count that interaction because, you know, it's out of the ordinary in some way or another. But we focused on the last one. And then we also had cumulative measures, right? Cumulative measures of lifetime arrests, lifetime, but also lifetime stops. And I think that's very important because most of the work done focuses on, on the last, on the most memorable or one. And then we had a, a chance to sort of expand a little bit on that since sort of the, the, cumul- the cumulative exposure is perhaps just as important. The idea that, you know, there's always the same people getting stopped over and over again is critical. And in fact, we saw in the surveys actually, because we, you know, I was there when we were collecting the data that people would say, you know, how, how many times have you been stopped? And people would like write over like across the piece of paper, I've been stopped a million times, right? So it's clearly not, you know, not a million times, but many times, more than anyone could sort of think or accept as justified, right? So, or people would lose track, right? I mean, I don't even know how many times. And that only happens in this kind of very specific population, right? Because if it's rare, you would remember it, right? And people are not seeing this as rare. I mean, it's as many times as how many times you've been to the restaurant today and you don't count it, right? It's, it's gone, right? So, so I think that dimension of time, I think it's important. And obviously the, 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 the other dimensions are buckets that, that Lee described in terms of the actual specific nature of those interactions, in terms of the type, in terms of the valuation of those, of those interactions along lines of respect and, and satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And I, I would add one more thing that I think is important and has come up more rec- in more recent work, distinguishing sort of, sort of evaluations of an encounter with objective markers of the intrusiveness of that encounter. So we also have measures of things like it's a index, you know, what we call, I think, I think we call it invasiveness. We'll have to check. But essentially, you know, if the encounter involved being handcuffed, if it involved being being frisked, those kinds of things as another way of capturing, you know, the nature of the interaction. Right. We, we call it the, po- the police coercive action ah. scale or something like that. But yeah, but it, at some point it did have that name. And I think sort of the, that's, that's, thank you for bringing that up, but I think it's very important because it does try to keep the, so to have a sense of what actually happened, right, in the context mm-hmm. of this instance, right? When you start asking questions about respect and satisfaction, then there is already an appraisal of what that means, right? And so by asking people what actually happened, we're trying to sort of separate those two because for someone, the police speaking loudly to you, it's not a sign of disrespect, right? It's just, you know, this is what cops do, that this is how they are, right? But for others, that is a sign of, of aggression. And in fact, depending on how you think about a use of force, then that is a force, right? Through mm-hmm. verbal communication, not, not through physical contact. And so for us, it was important to know what actually happened, right? And, and to, to, de- sort of to, 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 to go over the specific, so, so trying to mitigate or reduce the interpretation of the events, right? But by asking people, did any of these specific things happen, right? So the displaying of a, of, of a weapon, of a service weapon, of a firearm, may seem as threatening, right, for most people, but not to everybody. So we wanted to know, instead of asking them, did cops do something threatening? We asked them, did the cops display their weapon, right? So, so, that's, so we, had a, we had a number of those, of those items. All right, so now that we have some context to the study and the data, as well as the framework, can you just kind of hit us with the main findings from the paper? Sure, and I can start leave that's, that's okay. So first of all, so we, we sort of, one of the things we've, so on, on findings, right? So we, we, we found that most of the encounters that people reported, so those last encounters, 
people felt disrespected, right? So 80% of them felt disrespected during the last stop. And 60% of them felt that they had been discriminated more generally, not, not in connection with their police encounters, but in society at large. So discrimination and disrespect are frequent and even dominant sort of features of, of our experiences of this, of this sample. We also see that identity matters and matters specifically with legitimacy, right? So regardless of how we specify our baseline models, sort of people who feel more closely to the racial identity that have a stronger sense of that identity have or report lower levels of, of legitimacy. Now, that's important because of the controls that we have. So we have controls for what we call racial membership, right? So whether people are black or Latino, for example. And so identity is different and separate from, so racial identity is different and separate from racial membership or affiliation. And typically in the research, we tend to see those two as together, right? So someone who's black feels great about being black or feels sort of, oh, and all black people feel the same about being black. And we don't really sort of, we sort of put together the sense of identity, and which is a lot more heterogeneous and people may have very different views on on how, how they feel about it. And so we separate identity from, from membership. And so the construct of, of identity is strongly related to legitimacy, but not to effectiveness, which was part of what we were expecting to see, given that we see legitimacy as loaded with normative, with a normative meaning, something that we don't see in effectiveness, as Lee said, which is seen as more as more narrow. Right? So this is all sort of on the descriptive and sort of the sort of our baseline models and the importance of identity in connection to, to our outcomes, right? Legitimacy and, and effectiveness. And then we get to the sort of the more the, the sort of more complex findings on how identity relates to contact. And so so one of the one of our main the main findings in the study is that we see that respect, so feelings of feelings of disrespect during the last encounter matter for legitimacy and that feelings of satisfaction or dissatisfaction with the last encounter matter matter more for effectiveness. So sort of consistent in a way with what we were sort of setting up in our theoretical framework, then the connection between legitimacy and respect is stronger than a connection to satisfaction because satisfaction is more is more narrow, is less likely to mobilize other frames of, of interpretation of those encounters, and it's and it's less what we call in the paper sociotropic, right? So satisfaction deals with you as a person and the context of the problem that you were hoping to to be solved. So satisfaction and effectiveness makes sense to go together. Respect evokes more sociotropic framework where you're not only thinking about yourself and the one experience that you had, but you're thinking about everybody else who belongs and you feel close to, you feel attached to, you feel a member of the same group and how that interaction kind of informs that feeling that you have about about the police more generally. So that's on the sort of our main main effects. I don't know if Lee, you want to talk a little bit more about the sort of the, the interactions. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think for the interactions, we find that two of the interactions are, I would say, marginally associated with, are are marginally significant. And so we find that for two of our measures, disrespect, like your your last encounter, you felt disrespected. And our our measure of sort of coercive police authority or invasiveness, you know, what police actually did during the encounter. The effects of both of those variables tend to be amplified and really only emerge 
in people who said that they had identified strongly with their racial or ethnic group. And that only emerges for our outcome of legitimacy and not for effectiveness. So that, you know, that, that fits with the idea that really it is sort of legitimacy is a broader thing, it connects into racial identification and ties into sort of these moral judgments more than, than effectiveness again. Yeah, it's an interesting paper. And I thought it was, so I'm working on something right now within prisons on procedural justice and legitimacy. And legitimacy was definitely like the thing that mattered the most rather than procedural justice. So it's kind of interesting that for you guys, legitimacy was, you know, this more significant effect compared to effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So for time's sake, I think we that's a good spot to kind of transition into these more real world implications. And so what are the implications for the findings you guys found in the paper? Right. So I think sort of perhaps the main message that we hope the paper would, would communicate is, is that people walk into these encounters, encounters with the police, and they are not, they're not blank slates, right? That people carry with them their own prior experience or experiences that seem similar or are actually the same kind of experience, but also the collective experiences that involve what we think is a broader sense of a collective consciousness. And that's been, I think, somewhat missed from the conversation, which is the conversation on sort of individuals and these interactions as being discrete and as being independent of other interactions. And we try to link them together, at least conceptually, through the notion of identity. And so specifically for for African-Americans in this country, contact with the police and with that contact is negative, we argue that there is a way to sort of assign meaning to it based in this history of slavery and institutional and structural racism. And that I think sort of our study helps to sort of add to the growing empirical foundation of, of that of that kind of posture by saying, you know, there is a visible shaping of police attitudes that is attached to this notion of racial identity. And the reason why that's the case is because racial identity allows people to make sense of how their own experience is not only theirs, but it comes from from a broader set of patterns of oppression and, and, and society. Now, there are also, in some of the other data that we collected, people talked about positive encounters with the police. They were not as frequent. We didn't actually collect data on that in the survey. We asked them about their encounters. I mean, some of them were positive, some of them were negative, most of them were negative. But I think that's something that people did acknowledge, right? That police needed to be in the neighborhoods, that, that the police sometimes could be, for some events, could be mobilized in a different ways, that it could be supplemented or substituted by other services. And I think that's something that is important for us as we as we sort of think about about our current our current national conversation on, on on police reform. Yeah, I mean, I think I will add another thing. Maybe it's sort of not maybe not a real world implication, but an implication for research is, you know, as a quantitative researcher and seeing what a lot of quantitative researchers do, race becomes dichotomized, and there's very little attention paid to first of all, how it's even measured, how we handle people who report that they're multiracial, how sort of these national identifications maybe combine with race. And we did kind of try to tease that apart a little bit. And that race is in some sense fluid. 
and changing. You know, I've been working on a study where we did interviews with with kids, and some of the kids were multiracial, and they, you know, could talk about how their identity, their racial identity, was established, and and talked about sort of like the social factors that impacted that. So I think for us, we kind of took away from this the, the point that you know, a lot of researchers, including my, myself, <laughs> have simplified and a very complicated, a very complex idea, and that that has implications for research. I think that's a good point and something that, what was it, Jose, a year or two ago, we took a race and ethnicity class and only like a section on it focused on criminology and criminal justice, but that was definitely something that we took away from the class and if been trying to kind of tease out more in our own research. Yeah, it is. It is. I think it is such an important thing. And at least you guys are learning this early. I'm <laughs> learning it now, you know, however many years into my career. Yeah. So good for you. <laughs> Slowly learning. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you can learn things when you get old. So yeah. that's, a, that's a good thing to know, too. <laughs> yeah. We're learning how to be in a podcast today. Okay. <laughs> We're learning how to do podcasts, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that lends itself nicely to our next question. So people probably won't listen to this till sometime in the fall when we release these, but we are recording this June twenty fifth, twenty twenty. With what is this? The third week of the protest happening with Black Lives Matter, you know, and we're also in the middle of a pandemic. So these are interesting times to say the least and so we're seeing in current events the protests and and they're highlighting police excessive use of force and we have a couple of of deaths that have really headlined the, these protests uh, starting with George Floyd then Breonna Taylor now Richard Brooks I believe was in Atlanta and right now it seems like trust in the police as is at an all-time low. And we've, we're seeing these hashtags pop up in, in social media, hashtag defund the police, hashtag abolish the police, and hashtag end qualified immunity. So based on your work and some of the, the work of other scholars, I have a, a couple questions. And the first one is, is there any indication of changing perceptions of police legitimacy and procedural justice among the citizens? I mean, I can start to address this. And I think the answer is that we have a lot of anic data is what I, I call it. Like I've, I'm, we're observing the same kinds of things that you're observing. But, it, you know, in terms of systematic evidence, I'm not sure it's out there. I did see, I saw a poll that was done, a national poll by a reputable agency that said 90% of the public supports some form of police reform. And so I do think that that, provide some evidence that there is, you know, we are at a moment where people support changing the nature of policing, although there's definitely much less consensus about what that change will look like, obviously. We see a lot more mobilization. The mobilization is across a broader set of issues than before and has kind of spread to other areas such as, you know, academia itself is facing a lot of issues that have to do with race. And so I don't think that we know for sure, but the evidence certainly points to that. 
Andreas, did you want to, what did you want to add? Well, I think that, that, that there, it does feel like there is, to some extent, there's a mix of new and old forces, I think, right? On the one hand, you know, that you can go back in time and find uh, sort of versions of, of what we see today, even the killing of Emmett Till and the mobilization that it sparked could be seen as a precursor of all of this, right? Where, you know, the very graphic images of his killing sparked kind of mobilization in, across the country and demands for police reform and for sort of for justice, essentially. So to me, it's been very interesting to sort of actually track track that that story a little bit because the memorial for his that sort of commemorates his death has been vandalized, uh, you know, and, and stolen and, and sort of sh- shot many times in Mississippi. And so it's not only that the events are, you know, keep occurring, but it's also that our reckoning uh, of what this of what this sort of events signify is something that we haven't sort of addressed. So so that's the old that's the old so that's the old news. So, so this is not this is not new. But what's new then? And I think what at least again that's anecdotal, just just tracking the news and talking to people. And it does feel like it's there is more organization. I, I feel like there is learning from this at least the most recent wave of mobilizations. There is sort of legal strategy, sort of I think sort of pressure. So we know more on who to apply pressure to, right? So there is a lot more attention to prosecutors. There is more attention to collecting evidence, to securing evidence, to sort of. Uh, uh, not not losing track of what's happening and sort of not going home after, you know, a couple of days. And to be bold, I think sort of the ambitions have become a lot more sort of broader, right? In part because things have, I think, changed in other domains of criminal justice. So the abolish Rikers in New York, sort of, again, not, Rikers is not really going away. It's, you know, it's being, you know, reshaped into smaller prisons across the city. But the island itself and what it signifies, it will shut down and has been shutting down for the past few years. So that was, I think, crazy to, to sort of imagine a few years ago. So I think there is, so the, the sort of the demands have changed, the organization has changed, I think. There's sort of the influx of donations and organization of the protests themselves and the uprisings with medics and with sort of information and sort of legal observers and cameras and all of that is I think sort of something that I think we've learned to do better and I think so but but is there I mean I think it's it's too soon to tell I think whether this kind of support and and energy will translate into strength right I mean we've seen that at least at the level of Congress at this point that bills associated with with police reform have tanked and they've been sort of filed and, and forgotten until until after the election. So I think at the federal level, not a lot will, I think, happen in the short term. But I think if public opinion remains strong and people are continue to mobilize and organize, then I feel like that's that's new, right? I mean, new in a sense that it's, it's, it, feels, it feels different. It feels, it feels more cohesive in some ways. So kind of going off of that, our next question is what you guys think, either based off of research or your own personal thoughts on this, whichever way you want to go, is what should happen with the police? What kind of reformation should happen that would be most beneficial? I think we do first want to make the point that that's a very hard question to answer because policing is so local. You know, we have so many different police departments. I think I have 50 surrounding me right now. So 
so they're all at different places. They're all serving different people. They all, you know, so the, so it's, it's a hard question to answer. So I'll, I'll just start off with that. And then, you know, I'll kind of, would you mind if I could kind of combined it with the, my answer to the next question, which is, you know, versus what I think will happen. That's fine. Because I think these are kind of, I guess, my what I would like and what I think. Maybe I'm being hopeful. Maybe maybe they're sort of aligned. Maybe I haven't exactly come to terms exactly what I think should happen since I'm not really a policing expert. But, you know, I think there are some things, you know, there are some things that are happening that are relatively small changes, internal changes. So certainly changes in use of force policies, certainly changes in training, and, you know, people have argued for changes in the police, the, the diversity in police force and college educated. And these are all, you know, a lot of these are very important changes and they, they need to happen. But those are relatively internal changes. And so some of the bigger changes to really have an effect probably need to be like more at the systems level. And so one of the major pushes has been for transparency of records. And so I think... I think most people can agree, I hope, that, you know, that people who are officers who are misusing their power on the force repeatedly should not be able to just transfer from one police force to the other and stay behind that shield of secrecy. So transparency of data, of, of those kinds of records, and sharing of that information, I think, is, is something that's really important. And I do, and I think that will come about, I hope. And I do think another important change that is, is coming about and, you know, that, that I think would be particularly effective has to do with this shift of responsibility. So some people call it essentially defunding the police, but it's essentially the notion that the police aren't the answer to all, all of people's problems. And the police are not the best answer to many of those problems. And that a better way is to shift, to shift, to provide people with the assistance they need that works for the problems that they're having. And so some of this may be providing, you know, in communities, better social services and supports. But a, a smaller change that could happen is, is something that has happened, as Andrea said, in, to some extent in New York and places like Austin, where police departments have, or sorry, 911 dispatch systems have essentially set up a way where they can where they can triage people's calls to the best the people who are best equipped to respond. So if people are going to continue to call the police for some of these problems because they're not sure who to call at this dispatch center, they can they can shift problems that the police probably aren't equipped to deal with to other people who can deal with those problems. So I think so, some of those, I think, are some of the, the big changes that are, that are coming down sort of at more of a, a system level. Andreas? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's right. And I, one of the issues with sort of, sort of those changes to dispatch systems had to do with like potential negative effects on response, response times by adding another layer of sort of processing of calls. But it hasn't been the case, right? I mean, I think that sort of the, the alternative has been very hard to do, which is to sort of push people to sort of think about a second number or sort of, sort of forget about it and have the cops then decide what to do with the call. So I think that, that sort of the really sort of thinking about not asking people not to call, but asking the state to handle that call as a state, as a city, as, as a public authority, and then and I think that, that that makes sense. I think another thing that would be, I think, interesting to think about is that if we're thinking about systems change, a conversation about what we mean 
price safety needs to also be challenged. And safety doesn't necessarily mean the police. And I think it's important to ask questions about safety for whom and safety by whom. And I think, for example, questions on victimization by the police, we don't think about it. I mean, we don't think about it in the context of, so when we think about theories of victimization or when we talk about victimization, when we design instruments that deal with victimization, we don't think that for a number of people out there, then that involves the police many times, not because they're shot, but because of they're treated like shit, actually. And so sort of the framework that we have on the way prompts work and the way we think about reporting and in the way we think about criminality then suddenly break down when, when we have the police on the other end of those interactions. And so I think that's, that's important. So the sort of meaning of safety, who provides safety, who safety for whom is something for the city to, to deal with, but something for, for also academics to, to think about. And we have examples of this happening elsewhere, right? You, you, uh, Jan, I think you talked about corrections specifically. And I think sort of we've seen movements toward the, the, the funding of corrections in a sense that are, I mean, I don't think anyone is talking about it in that sense, but like it's sort of with reentry, prisoner reentry, sort of really thinking differently about how we justify, how we frame, how we distribute funds for people returning home. I think in, in most models, that remains a conversation that is a correctional conversation. So correction handles the funds, corrections calls the meetings, corrections, this is about recidivism, this is about public safety. But in the more advanced models, in places, including, for example, Michigan, a lot of that reentry work is actually not done through the Department of Corrections, but through the different state departments that deal with housing, that deal with workforce development, that deal with mental health, that deal with substance abuse, that they all come together to think about this specific population. But it's not a, a problem that can only exist because Corrections is calling the shots. And I think if we were to think about how, how we can transfer some of that conversation across the conversation about safety has to then eventually move away from being controlled by the police. And yes, involving social workers whenever it feels convenient and, and for some specific specialized units for de-escalation and mental health. But if the cops are the ones calling and the ones at the end of the day paying and the ones who get to talk about these things, then it's not going to be enough, right? I mean, I think at the end of the day, so in these teams, these teams are going to be dominated by, by the traditional model of law enforcement. And again, something we've seen in models that have kind of like dual roles for people like as caseworkers or social workers, psychologists and probation officers or parole officers or correction officers. If you put them together, even though it looks like it's an even exchange because of the framework, because of the uniform, before who, who controls the money, what are the things that get reported, how is the money being justified? It's all corrections all the way in, in most places. So it's not going to work just saying, just, just add a, a few social workers here and there, and then, and then the model is going to change. It's not going to change. Yeah, that's very interesting. But we're at the end of our time. And you know, thank you so much for joining us, Lee and Andres. Uh, you know, thank this you is, very much. You know, this is great work, and we really could spend another two hours talking to you about it. <laughs> <laughs> you might not need a joke. To, we could. <laughs> you might need to edit it down a little bit. I know you're speaking for a, a shorter podcast, so we completely understand if you take your editorial chopping block to it. So don't 
Don't we're also used to we're also used to rejections. So <laughs> uh, many rejections. That's the yeah. business, right? <laughs> we can talk about this paper how many times it got rejected, but yes. Oh yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's the nature of the beast. It is. Yeah, I think we all know that pain. <laughs> it doesn't go away. <laughs> Unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> but, uh, but th thank you, thank you for inviting us. This was great, and I appreciate the the chance to meet you both and to sort of talk about about these things that I think matter to to all of us, and that we're you know are going to be I think impactful for for our work, for our teaching, for how we think our, ourselves as, as scholars and as community members. Yeah, no, we greatly appreciate it. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Anything coming up, either? A collaboration with each other or individually and new papers that we should be on the lookout for chapters i'm going to plug some of my students because sure. i'm very excited about their work we have a set of great students who are you know entering their dissertation stage so some of the students are doing work in this area so jen o'neill is doing work it's going to be related to these issues in schools we have a student claire green who's doing work on doing an ethnography in a police department focusing on technology as well as sort of role of capitalism in it, which is really exciting. Working on a paper with, da with Dale Dan Erebor that looks at, you know, procedural justice legitimacy and the effects on civic engagement. And then last but not least, Sherelle Green, she's doing work on violence and comparing violence experienced by young men in the community to those experienced by men who have been in combat. So lots of great work coming out of Amzal. So that's who I'm going to plug. Sorry, Andre. <laughs> that's all true. That's all true. <laughs> I can attest to, 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 to that. Well, one thing I would say is just sort of on this week, going back to sort of procedural justice, I think sort of one thing that I've been kind of working on, and, and, and you guys mentioned it in the intro, is I've been trying to think about procedural justice in courts, actually. You would imagine that sort of procedures matter and justice yeah. matters, right? But a lot of the procedural justice work has been outside of, of, mm -hmm. sort of the formal system of justice. So I think that's so that's sort of I think interesting theoretically. I think it's it's, it's, it's also interesting methodologically. And one thing that I, I, I just got published is on the effect of interpreters on uh, bail decisions. And I think it's interesting because it expands how we think about stratification, racial stratification, and yeah. ways we think about how inequality gets reproduced by language difference and by action of the interpreters themselves. So this is a study based on observations of over some, some 600 bail hearings in New York and New Jersey, and we looked at how decisions and how interactions in court for bail are related to the presence and the sort of the exchanges associated with an interpreter. Most of these interpreters were language speaking interpreters, which of course is a great thing that people now, as opposed to in the 60s, have interpreters provided free of charge, although in some jurisdictions that's not the case. And even if it's the case, like in New York and New Jersey, and interpreters are certified and they go through some level of screening and, and accountability, we see them as performing quite a few disciplinary sort of behaviors that are way beyond what they're supposed to do. Of course, the work is hard to do and it's, it's, it's uh, but you know, things, things matter and we do see that regardless of sort of legal and extra legal factors, then people who, who have an interpreter are less likely to receive an ROR. 
that that bail hearing sense. So, so it's exciting. I'm sort of working and writing about about bail quite a bit on video arraignments now, also and mm-hmm. sort of comparing video versus in person arraignments, and how obviously a lot of that has been very important now in a COVID in a COVID world. So 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 thinking about sort of expanding and contributing to sort of thinking more generally about sort of racial groups and racial categories, categories that are not, that go beyond sort of the, the, the three groups that we typically tend to, to, to examine, to think about language difference, to think about immigration courts, uh, sort of something that is also of interest to me and been actively working on, on that both in, in, in school and, and beyond. Lots of cool stuff you guys are doing yeah. your students. And, yeah, it yeah, sounds fascinating. What are you guys doing? Other than the podcast, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reading for comps right now. I start them on August 3rd. So that's like my primary thing that I'm doing. And I'm doing research in the Oregon prison system in restrictive housing, doing kind of a program evaluation, which was supposed to start right when COVID hit. And so now we had to quickly transition to doing them through phone. And yeah, so that's been interesting. That's great. That's my primary thing. Yeah, I'm working on... Well, um, we have a third-year paper requirement in our department, so yep. that's sort of where I'm at. And I'm working with David on an NIJ-funded evaluation of Denver's uh, gang reduction program, which was also heavily impacted by COVID. So at one point, the city determined that they were non-essential and shut them down. And then a couple of shootings happened, and they're, and they're like, okay, so you're essential, come back. <laughs> wow, really, that's really interesting work, I think. That's really great. Um, I just want to ask one follow-up question. You mentioned comps in a third-year paper. Is that, what, what do those look like at Boulder? I'm just curious. You know, we're always trying to revise ours, so. Yeah, so for the third-year paper, so the end goal for that is to have something that you can send out for review. So it takes the shape of a manuscript, more or less. We're limited to, what, 10,000 words, mm-hmm. I believe it is. With and references. Then, yeah, for anyone 10, listening, <laughs> no one remembers that. That was <laughs> in my cohort. Yeah, and then, so it goes out to your advisor and two ran- blind reviewers. Oh, in the and, department. Yeah, within the department. department. Yeah, but the end goal is to get students to go through sort of like that review process and have something that they could potentially send out for review and publication. And so do you, what's the, do you get like, do, is there like a pass, no pass, and then a revised period or is it? um, Yeah, so you can pass. I believe this one also comes with pass with honors, but I'm not, uh -uh. no, it's not just comps. There's pass and then pass with revisions. I'm not sure what the time frame is. I think it's a couple of weeks that you have to do the revisions or fail. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, you can, like, not really. It's kind of, yeah, I don't know of anyone that has failed. I know that if you do fail, that you can resubmit. He likes to fail people. That's why she's asking. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's not true. Jenna, I I don't know if you... You're probably familiar with work that Vir has done on reducing the use of segregation. Vir, the Vir Institute of Justice, they have an mm-hmm. extensive program. I think some of it on the West Coast. I'm not sure exactly where, but it's, uh, they've been putting out a lot of, I think, good, good stuff on that if you just... Yeah. That. I, ha- 
I know that that exists, but I haven't done a lot of digging into it. Yeah. It's on my list of things to dig into after after all of the comms readings. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Do, do you get a reading list for your comps? Yeah, so our program is also kind of redoing how they think about comps, kind of. Where I stand right now, my cohort is able to put together our own comp lists. So we have three sections. Two of them are supposed to be more broad, and then one can be more specific. But typically, people still focus the more broad subjects around what they're wanting to do for their dissertation. So we call them specialty comprehensive exams rather than just comprehensive exams. Put together a reading list. Typically, there's about 30 readings on each list. I had way more than that because David was like, nope, you need to add more and more and more. So I have a lot of readings on mine. And then you get... You can either choose if you want one question per section or two, and you get them all at the same time, and you have a week to write papers for each section, and each paper is about 10 to 15 pages. So yeah, that's our process. And how do you guys feel about that process? I mean, aside from it being, you know, is is that what you would like to see? Sorry, I'm just... Yeah, I'm just... Um, <laughs> I'm really nervous for it since it's in like a month, but I think I like the format. It recently changed within the last two years. So initially it was, you had to write these three papers within a 24 hour period, which you could split into three eight hour sections or one 24 hour section, kind of however you wanted to do it, which was a lot for people, especially because in our department we had, no, we don't have a lot, but we have a few people who English is their second language. And so it was kind of difficult for them to do that within, you know, an eight hour chunk of time. And so there was a lot of thought put into it. And so that's why now it's extended into a week instead. So I think that's a good compromise to help everyone. And it's still, you know, a terrifying process, as I'm sure you guys know. I oh, yeah. The comps take like different forms in different schools so yeah yeah but the one thing that's consistent yes it's always stressful yeah <laughs> I like the idea that it's student-led at least in terms of creating the, the reading list and that there is at yeah. least some sense of bounding of that list even if it doesn't work with everybody but it's uh, I think that's a good idea I mean, we just yeah. went through the process of revising ours and it's just yeah. it's not clunky what you know it gets outdated and I think the boundaries of what is scholarly work and non-scholarly work are starting to shift a little bit. And so it's, yeah. it's hard for, for us to think about what's, you know, at what point this book is an opinion piece or something else and not, you know, at what point we include it in, in our reading list, especially yeah. with new stuff, right? I mean, if something is 10, 10 years old, then you have you have a 2020 view on, the, on it. But if it's, you know, if it's something that was published last year and it's not, you know, so-and-so university press. Yeah. How do you how do you deal with it? Anyway, yeah. all right. Well, I gotta go. I'm making rice. And, and yeah. Thank you guys so much for uh, yeah yeah, and thanks for your time. And again, you know, look forward to seeing the cut down. Yeah. Good luck. That's <laughs> great. Yeah. Good luck yeah. with that. <laughs> Thank you again for everything. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. Have a good day. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye.